has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10 and Grant's microbiter. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and good afternoon, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, and with me today is retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing today, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Belly, and I'm very delighted that we have such a great guest today. Absolutely, and uh, joining us, the better-looking person uh, in the middle of the screen oh, is, is, is uh, investigative journalist, and author, Michelle McPhee, who is very familiar with uh, cases like this. In fact, is a fantastic investigative journalist and has, to this day, written seven books, and she's working on her eighth. And we invited her to do the show today. And uh, Michelle, welcome to the show. I love being with these two prestigious and handsome gentlemen with such great backstories behind them. I, so I always say yes. This is Michelle's book on the Boston Marathon, which is an amazing investigative piece of journalism. I, I read it myself. I was amazed at all the things I didn't know. By the way, I, I love the Boston chief. I forget his name right now, but the guy's a real Ed cop. Davis. Yes, Ed yes. Davis. Real cop. Ed Davis, uh, Billy Evans. We've been very lucky with our police commissioners. Now we have um, another interesting guy, Michael Cox. Who was at the center of a of a Boston scandal? So Boston always gets some pretty good, interesting commissioners at the top. And you, and you even delivered with your Boston accent, so uh, people love that. People uh, watching this show, this book is a date with death about the Craigslist killer, who undoubtedly, if he uh, wasn't caught early on in his murder career, would have become a serial killer, a real dangerous and uh, psychological study. And uh, Michelle did a great job in that book also. I'm just putting some photos as you when you were an investigative reporter. Uh, and here we are with the, again, with the Boston Marathon book, which was a, just a, a, an incredible uh, piece of journalism and uh, incredible Tremendous. book. Yeah, it was excellent. I appreciate that from you yeah. too. I really do. You, you know, Michelle, one of the things, and Phil, you also, is one of the big problems with this case right now is mixed messaging, is that we all know coming from a big police department, and Michelle, you worked for Deputy Commissioner of Public Information for the NYPD. Uh, isn't that correct? I worked with them. With so them. we worked out of the shack, uh, you know, the second floor historically back in the day of the New York Daily News and the New York Post and the New York Times. So we all worked out of 1PP together. And it was a great way to actually, you know, cover a beat, which I think that's one of the problems. That's why p people are not covering policing correctly. And we have all these talking heads that don't know anything because no one embeds themselves in the beat. And, you know, when you kind of and you guys know how long it takes to, you know, trust a, a reporter. So you have to kind of be 
around them all the time and ne uh, never I wouldn't say never, but uh, yeah, you got to be quite careful with yeah. uh, things that you put out because listen, there, there's certain times if you build a, a relationship with, with the reporter or someone in the news media that you can trust to say, listen, this is off the record and they'll respect that. And for different reasons, not that you want to hide information or anything, but right. as a uh, investigation is flowing and it's, uh, it's fluid, uh, obvious. And, and in this case specifically, there's a lot of things that you don't want made public. So, but I think the messaging is one of the big contentious points in this case, for sure. The messaging is not good. Yeah, that's no. where, uh, I mean, do you guys remember, oh, sorry. The, the ahead, great ahead, Charlie, Charlie Wells, remember Charlie Wells? Sure. Yes. Good man. Infamous, great guy. But when you develop good relationships with people, you know, Charlie Wells had a huge case. I was about to write about it. And he called me and said, can you hold off for a week? Give us a week. And that's how those relationships are supposed to work. And that's not what's happening in this case. The cops are going but off you, the you, top you, with all kinds of different messages, right? Michelle, let me just make this one point. I think that what you said earlier, when you're, you, you say, what you call it, the shed, you worked in the shed, you're understanding shed, how yeah. investigations go and you understand how uh, police work and, and homicide investigation works. So you're willing to work along when someone makes a request like that. It's not because he's looking for, you know, uh, some kind of a fame, uh, you know, he wants to do a press conference. It's for a reason. And, and obviously he made that request. You wanted it. And that's how you build a relationship with the media and, you know, both sides work together. That's important. You know, folks, this is um, the, uh, week number three of this case. And, you know, it started out, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but uh, it started out with with bad messaging. And now, you know, the, the parents of uh, Kaylee Gonzalez, they're really uh, being vocal and they're really pissed off at the way the investigation is being held. But unfortunately, you know, the police just can't release everything. They really cannot do that. And, um, you know, people think we talk about transparency. It's not really a kind of crime that you want to be transparent. They have to hold things back. Let me play some of their interview and you'll see what I'm talking about. Transparent and strong for the public. Christy, you called the person that did this the boogeyman. Yeah. What did you mean by that? It's literally like what nightmares are made of. Like when you're a little kid and you think of the boogeyman, that's just how I feel. Like that's just the horrific details of everything. Them just having a good time going home and going to bed and this happening to them. Your best friend crawling into bed. Just crawling every, into bed. Every and girl the in America comes. knows what that's the like. The boogeyman doesn't, you know, meet, meet you at McDonald's. I mean, the boogeyman comes and snatches you out of your bedroom. Steve, um, we've been talking. I've been talking to folks in the community. You said something that stuck with me. You said, until this person is caught, you can't sleep in your bed. No. I can't just lay in my bed and do nothing. That's not the way I raised my family. That's not the way I raised my girls and my son. You, you don't be a victim. You stand up for yourself and you do everything in your power to make sure people hear you. Now I'm gonna, they're going to hear Kaylee. They're yeah. going to hear Maddie. They're going to hear these. these the other two as well. Yes. Oh, I, I'm careful saying anything about them because I need to be careful because I can't speak on somebody else's child. But these two girls are not trying to be a glory hound. 
But these two girls, I'm going to do what I can do. And we're not being victims. We're going to fight. We're going to figure out how to make sure that we hold everybody, you know, accountable. And we keep eyes and attention on this and, and get this thing resolved. Steve, you have made it very clear to our audience that you are supportive of law enforcement. You support the investigation. But recently, I've been watching and talking with you, and you're getting frustrated. What does that frustration come from, sir? They put certain people between you and the officers that are making things happen. And those people are like lawyers and they don't want to say anything and they don't they don't have the guts to come up and be alpha and be like leaders and say, hey, we might say something that's wrong. We're going to take that hit. So the officers, they look me straight in their eyes. The lead de detective looked me in his eyes. He, I, get, I have no doubt he's working as hard as he can. But somebody isn't communicating. There's nothing being released. It seems like they're, they're, they're trying to suppress the story. They, we want to put rewards out there. Like, don't do that. Yeah, I get it. Your town doesn't want to have reward posters posted all over when you come and you do your rush. You're not going to get a lot of students if they see those things. But this community is not going to heal until this guy's pulled off the streets. It ain't going to happen. Think it through. It's not going to happen. He has to be off the streets. We all work for the same thing. You know, I totally understand that about them. Uh, the colleges um, aren't always transparent with their crime statistics. And when they get a crime, they get an investigation. They try sometimes to uh, not make it public because, again, there's kids uh, waiting to go to this college, and it's not a good recruitment poster, a, a reward poster. So I understand, and I believe that's true, I, but I think there should be a reward in this case. What do you think, Michelle? I mean, obviously, there needs to be something in this case, because this is a long time with zero leads on such a horrific slang. Uh, you know, it, I feel like what all they're doing is putting – the wrong people under the glare of suspicion by questioning individuals close to these four slaying, slaying victims. But, you know, having a reward out there, I think might spark some intel on exactly who and what were around these people. I mean, the boogeyman, isn't that terrifying to sit there and think about a mom going to bed every night, wondering if her daughter was killed by some sort of monster, which clearly somebody capable of this kind of crime is a monster. But in a college setting, I mean, we've seen this before. There was an NYPD detective who did a great pattern sheet on the smiley face killers who were, you know, very active on in and around college campuses. And none of the cities, including Boston, wanted to release Detective Gannon's work because they were afraid of the panic it would, that would ensue. Uh, Bill, I have a message for uh, all four families. Uh, I would never go against uh, what the police are doing. And uh, if they tell them not to release something, I get it. But I think all four families should get together and put up a reward, whether the law enforcement officials want it or not. Uh, large sums of money, open doors, and that one little tip could lead to the conclusion of this case and the successful uh, location of the perpetrator. I don't care what law enforcement tell me. This is a personal note. I had a case years ago. Uh, a family member was killed. Uh, five days in, there, a video was released, and uh, the police department didn't want a reward to go out. However, the families got together, and they put the reward out there. And within hours, within hours, uh, the perpetrator, someone called up and gave the name of the perpetrator. So I would implore the families. Get together, get that reward out there. I don't care about the college town, whatever reasons they don't want posters up. 
the heck with that. You, we want to solve this case. Get a reward out there as quick as possible. Uh, I can't. I can't say it enough. Phil, you know something? I agree. The parents have to be advocates for their daughter, and they have to be aggressive with this. And you can't. You know, I would be as aggressive as hell, but at the same time, you have to work with the police because yes, ultimately they're the ones that are doing this investigation. But there's been some, we don't know specifically what they have evidentiary right now, especially forensic evidence. I would, have- I, I would rather see the, uh, the families get together and put out a reward. They could do it, even release it to the press, have a press conference, rather than doing an interview with Lawrence Jones, as we're watching right now, and maybe accidentally or intentionally divulge things that the police don't want them to divulge. I would rather see them do the reward thing, even though the police may not want it or officials may not want it rather than doing these interviews, these interviews. Listen, I I like Lauren Jones. I think he's a great journalist. I I understand he's keeping the story active. That's all great. But again, getting a little close to the families now, they might be saying things that the police might not want out there and for different reasons. So let's do the reward work on that. That's something that all the families can get together. Every family puts up some money and they put it out there and it doesn't have anything to do with the police department. You know, they really can't stop them. So I would think that that's one of the things that I also said is that the police need to get out into the community. And by that, I mean, standing at, at traffic areas, handing out flyers, help us help you give us information on this case. Keep the case out there. Keep the pictures of these kids out there. That's what we do on the NYPD. We get out into the community. We hand out flyers. We got, we have a crime stoppers car going out, making announcements. Clearly, the University of Idaho doesn't want that because I think it would hurt their enrollment. But you know something? Four kids were murdered, and you're going to have to put it on hold right now. The first Saturday after this happened, one week later, Bill and I both said at the time that we think the murders happened, even a little before and a little after, they should have flooded the neighborhood with investigators handing out flyers if you have any information. You might have clicked on someone that saw something the week before that might be there on a regular basis, whether it be somebody coming from work or an Uber driver, whatever it was, they should have flooded the area. Those were the things that we came up with. Now, not trying to knock the investigators or how they're handling this case, but these are things that we would normally do. And Bill and I both said that early on. You have to wonder though, if the, if the FBI has now stepped in, because when you see this sort of inconsistent messaging and the actions of police officers are, you know, tamped down, I wonder if there are feds lurking in the background trying to control what's happening in this investigation. And that is why we're not seeing more cops flooding the streets, which I completely agree with both of you. There is nothing more important. Number one, just to calm fears. I mean, look, the lack of clues has just steamrolled the entire community with anxiety, right? So I think that- And rightfully so. Perhaps, yeah, of course. Perhaps there are some other people that are pulling the strings behind the scenes that are making the cops less visible on this case, which I think all three of us have seen in the past on big headline producing cases like this. It's who's going to be behind the scenes pulling the strings. And if the FBI is not pulling the strings, they don't want information out there. Right. They they have a, uh, a history of being quiet. Let me just play a little more of this. When was the last time y'all heard from the police? Thursday. Thursday, we looked at our phone records. We want to be accurate. We don't want to sell anyone out. About 3 o'clock on Thursday. And And did y'all get an update from the police about the investigation? There was nothing. We have no updates for you. There was no update. They needed me to sign a waiver form so that they could investigate something. Some mail. That was mail-related. So 
we're working with them. We're not selling them out. We love our law, law support. The FBI, everybody that's here. I've, we just have no information as family. And it gets um, tough day after day after day. I mean, every day you just wake up and think today's the day. We're going to hear something. And you see these, oh, there's a break in the case. And it'll just be something stupid. The sixth you know? person in the, there's, on the lease that was never there. Stop playing games. This is serious. These are people's lives. And this is the future of this community. There's going to be 10,000, 15,000 kids that come into this community next year or they don't. So be I, serious. I, I had the opportunity to speak to some of my sources and I've been told that there were differences in the way that the victims were killed. Some were more severe than the other. And this week we heard the tar target attack walk back and then reverse her back to it being a target attack. What can you tell us about the targeted attack? Um, they have told us that it was targeted, and but they told us they can't tell who. We asked specifically, and they said, we'll try to get that information to you. And they got back to us a day or so later, and they said, we're sorry, we can't give you that information. But then a day later, we saw in the news that it was not targeted, or they think the whole house was targeted. But I'll cut to the chase. Yeah. Their means of death don't match. Maddie's they don't and Kaylee's cause of death, it does yeah. not match based on the autopsy report. They don't match. Yeah, yeah. Would would indicate that one of them He doesn't have may to go up the steps. Let's stop playing games, guys. I need somebody to step up and be an outfit. Be somebody to be a leader. Don't make me do it. I don't want to do it. He doesn't have to go up the steps. They're mad they're they're points of Damage don't match. I'm just going to say it. it wasn't leaked to me. I earned that. I paid for that funeral. I paid for that. It's my right. You ain't taking that from me. Calm down. If you don't want to say nothing, that's your bet. But don't say I'm leaking anything. I paid that bill. So you can hear the frustration in the father's voice, the anger. Um, but I also, uh, look, I'm a cop. I'll always be a cop. And I understand them, you know, just doling out little bits of information and not everything they know. Because, look, he just told something that they didn't want out there, you know, out of frustration, out of anger, out of, you know, just grieving for his daughter. But they didn't want that out there. It's out there now that, that the wounds on the two girls were different. What do you know? We have all these talking heads that come out of the woodwork during things like this, and they all talk about what different things mean, you know, psychologically, and they're all experts. And I would like to know with a lot of them, how many murders have they actually worked? You know, this stuff is coming right out of books because I don't think most of them that, that have given their opinions have actually worked homicides, you know. But there's all of these opinions, there's all of these talking heads. Oh, this is what that means, this is what this means. Really? How many murders have you worked? That's what I would like some broadcaster to ask one of these talking heads. Billy, later on in that interview, they had Dr. Michael Biden on. Now, uh, we know means of death. These are quotes. Means of death didn't, don't match. Points of damage don't match. And Lawrence Jones said differences in the way they were killed, some more severe than others. And Biden explained it. And, you know, he's got super experience on doing autopsies, medical, medical examiner. The person that had the most damage would probably be the one that was targeted. He laid it out and I agree with him. He said, if there is someone that uh, a collateral 
uh, victim uh, is stabbed until they stop breathing or go unconscious, that's when the attack would stop. But if there's one person that was targeted and there are multiple, multiple stab wounds, that would indicate if one person has uh, just a handful of stab wounds until they went unconscious, but another person is mutilated, then that would indicate that is the person who was targeted. And I agree with him 100%. I think he hit the nail right on the head. Michelle, you would, would you uh, speak to that? Well, I'm, I'm just curious. I, I mean, obviously, the, the two of you have had a plethora of experiences with solving homicides. How many homicides do you think the Moscow-Idaho police encounter on a yearly basis? Well, they haven't had yeah. one since seven years. Um, two, yeah, seven years. Yeah. So, so it's, I, it's yeah, can you imagine like the, the it's it's not automatic like you you know I've been to many many homicide scenes and you just you're I am always astonished by the NYPD's professionalism you know you have the forensics teams there you have the people that are gathering intel you have them you know the uniforms taking people's names and numbers and getting intel like it just feels like maybe it's a little bit smoother but one of the things that Father just said is that they didn't have to enter from the stairs. So what does that signify to you two, that it was somebody who was lying in wait in the house? I mean, actually, it could be. But however, yeah. you know, the, the house is a little weird that the second floor is on the, the ground level and the first floor is actually below uh, the second floor. And many people believe and it's never been confirmed that the killer entered through the sliding glass doors, which apparently uh, when they asked a lot of people were never locked. You know, Billy, later on, I talked about how Baden came on and said that he spoke to exactly that. He believes from his looking at this case that the configuration, because like you said, the first floor of the location is on a ground level, but it's a lower le level. The the terrain does go up in the back. It looks like it was an add-on, uh, uh, you know, was built later on that the front part of the house that's lower was built first and then this extension was built afterwards. And that's the second floor. Uh, ground level to the back where the parking lot is and the woods are. And he seems to believe his opinion. He said that he thinks the killer entered and exited through that location. I tend to agree. Billy and I went over it. We believe it's either going to be that one, that sliding glass door or the one that's uh, on the second, which would actually be the third level from the back. There's another sliding glass door there and there is a deck. So it possibly could have gone up onto that deck and, and made entrance. But the possibility of someone laying in wait, yes, I think that's possible too. Yeah, Michelle, we feel, and again, I'm not, uh, I'm not a profiler. I, I don't have experience in profiling things, but I've, I've been to hundreds of homicide scenes. I, I worked in Manhattan North Homicide for almost ten years. Besides, you know, I did 27 years in the NYPD, and I worked in the Two Three Squad, which was also no, you know, no slough off for uh, homicides in Manhattan North. And, you know, you know certain things instinctually. And one of the things that we have on the NYPD, which is great, and I, we, we always refer to it because that's our background, we had so much support. Detectives don't collect evidence. We have a crime scene unit that does that. You know, detectives don't have to do the telephone. We have a taru unit that, that, that does that. Uh, we don't have to give out statements. We have a DCPI that does that, that speaks for the department. So all of that stuff is professionally done. And none of those folks are going to hurt the case. They're going to help the case. So when this is, you know, people say in the chat, oh, why are you talking about the heaven and a homicide in, in uh, you know, in seven years? Well, because it's important. Homicide is a different type of investigation than any other type of crime. 
It's the highest level of crime that could be the death, the murder of a human being. And you can't just be like the guy that fixes your transmission. Sure, I'd like to fix a transmission. No, you need experience to do this and to do it correctly. And we all hope and we pray uh, that the Moscow Police Department, I know they're working their ass off. I know they are. But, you know, there's certain things that the experience quotient is really important. Well, if, you, if you're listening to that dad and you kind of read between the lines of what he's saying, it sounds like, you know, his daughter's friend was the in intended victim and that the perpetrator, at least from what I'm picking up what he's saying, and maybe you disagree, was already in the house because he made a point of saying that he didn't have to use the steps. Right. And that seemed like new information. So you have you to know, wonder who had access to that house, but it also sounds like everyone had access to that house. Yeah, well, it was the party house. Someone in the chat is, what does it mean that their points of entry don't match? Phil, you want to answer that? I don't think he said the points of entry don't match. I think he said the points of damage don't match, meaning uh, the way that they were actually, uh, the, the injuries that they sustained. That's what I think he's speaking of. I don't think it was points of entry. I think it was, he said points of damage and I actually wrote it down. So I don't know, maybe if uh, heaven 57 is talking about something else, she can clarify in the chat, but I don't think it was points of entry. The points of entry, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this. I think that the perpetrator probably came in the same way that he went out. It's, you know, maybe in a, in a, in a, a, a hus, you know, he was rushing to get out, could have gone out to another way, but more than likely it's going to be, he came in and, and exited from the same uh, point of entry. Oh yeah. We spoke about, oh, heaven uh, 57. Thank you for the $5 super chat. Thank you. Much heaven. appreciated folks. This is police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. And if you want to contribute to our channel, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube family with five different levels. And you see the folks in the green font, they're part of our YouTube family. You know, last night, uh, Duty Ron did an amazing show. And I'm going to try to one day steal Ed Wallace from him. I don't know. he That could be shots fired because Ed Wallace is, is probably – the best crime scene guy on. And I think I could probably steal another retired first grade detective that did the same thing. I don't know if he's as good as Ed Wallace, but I just want to show something that Duty Ron showed last night on his show. And it, it really shows some of the forensic evidence, not the greatest. It was probably taken from a, uh, a long range camera from far away through the window. What's going on? And, and um, you know, it's a uh, bottom line. It's their decision. If stopping them uh, from doing it uh, but you know from a forensic standpoint uh, I I would ask you know them to consider new evidence that may pop you know that may be associated with examining what do we what are we looking at here Ed is this a it looks like fingers and a, and a partial palm print here here is a um, you have here a casement window that cranks open from the center outward. Uh, that white blur is the flash of a, from a 35 millimeter camera's flash that's burning into the glass and to the lower left corner, you see uh, what looks like four digits of and then the top of the palm, um, and it looks like. It may have been processed uh, with fingerprint powders. And there are photographs um, of uh, there's this 
showing um, crime scene tech processing a window like this uh, from the outside. Uh, I'm not sure if this is, I don't believe um, the flash is burning the, in the glass. Uh, right. And, you know, there's what see, the flash should not be 90 degrees to that window. It's if, if the, the head of the flash can pivot, then you would want to pivot the flash up and put a diffuser on it so that you don't get this burn here and you can get more detail out of the um, handprint. Right. Um, so this yeah. is like, you know, forensic photography. Uh, one right. Now, your, your audio keeps cutting in and out a little bit, Ed, but we're getting most of what you're saying. But what I wanted to ask you is on this photo, and I'm keeping it on the photo, Ed and I are off screen. Over here where the um, evidence tape is on the inside, I guess, going across the so it doesn't open, you see kind of smears here or kind of drags. Um, is this, is, uh, would this be all something that you would take um, and process and, and these little spots here, or is this like, well, if it's, if it's anything that might be associated with someone touching that, um, and there's no rich detail, then that could be swabbed for DNA. Right. And this is all the white powder that they use to actually highlight these, uh, images. Yeah, it, um, and you know, and a good trick for something like this, uh, to illuminate, uh, the window from the side, take the flash off the cam. Just wanted to show there's a whole handprint on a glass window. But now the question is, whose is it? Right. Is it right? It could have been there for a while, right? Is it is it the killer's handprint? Is it one of the girls' handprint? Is it some of the hundreds of kids that came in and out of that house. So these are the type of things that forensic investigators are up against. And we, Phil and I spoke about elimination prints, uh, elimination DNA, because how much DNA is in that house? And unidentified, unidentifiable DNA, especially blood DNA, that would be the smoking gun in this case, would be unidentifiable blood DNA. That is... That very well could be the perpetrator. But we're not hearing about that right now. Bill, you know, we talked about uh, how uh, in all homicide cases of this nature that we would bag the victim's hands. And uh, Dr. Michael Bodden, I'm going to bring him up again. He made a very, very good point. All one of the victims had to do was touch the perpetrator's face or any of his exposed skin. And they could actually pick up touch DNA from the victim's hands by swabbing the hand. Even if that person didn't have a defensive wound, if they touched the perpetrator to try and stop him from stabbing them, Touch DNA could be picked up. So again, once we zero in on a suspect, they talked about over 100 pieces of evidence recovered from the crime scene. We will be able to undoubtedly have a DNA that we can profile, that we'll have on uh, on file. And if we get a suspect and everybody that they're talking to that falls into a person of interest or a suspect category, they should be taking a DNA sample. I'm sure they are. And then the minute that you have uh, a match, that's your suspect. You go to work on, uh, you know, in the interview room, the box, uh, try and get a uh, confession out of the suspect. Michelle? I mean, to me, it is, it's just so interesting because 
um, usually with these female victims, when I write about it, uh, it's a crime of passion. And it sounds like if there was more damage on one of the girls, the points of damage that the dad referenced, yes. then it, it was very likely one of those two female roommates that was targeted by the perpetrator, which should narrow down the suspect list. Um, you know, they, I guess they, they both had an interesting array of people around them. And, you know, uh, as most girls do in college, they would, they had dated multiple people. Do you think that, what would you guys do? Would you go immediately to romantic love interest, given the state of the two female victims? You know, Michelle, we spoke in depth about this, and the victimology is probably the most important thing in a homicide investigation. And that's a deep dive into each one of these victims. Find out uh, where they were. That, Of course, the timeline, we spoke about that. Who do they hang out? I said earlier on with Phil or early on today that um, every single guy in the fraternity and the sorority should be interviewed. Every single person. I don't care if there's 300 or 500 members. Every single person should be interviewed. That takes manpower. But guess what? You got to do it. You got to find it out. You got to find out who is the oddball. What does someone know? Did so? Is someone going to point you in the right direction? That is what interview and interrogation is all about. And that's why the detectives got to get out. If they don't have enough people, get more people. Get more right. people. You know. I, I think. I mean, who got just... shut down? Right. Like, what? Well, who's the guy that got who got shut down by one of these girls? Right. That, well, that, that, know. Yeah. That's going to be, be a key, that's going to be a key to motive. But I think what we're discussing here is reading the crime scene. When you are a homicide investigator, you go into that crime scene. You're able to decipher things. Like I had a triple homicide stabbing as well, where the we believed that the perpetrator was known to the victims because one of the victims had their throat slashed and it was covered. When we got to the crime scene, the crime scene had been staged. So that was indicative of uh, someone very close to the victim being the perpetrator. So there's different things that you can read in a crime scene. Now, uh, we're getting a lot of information. Now, it looks like one of these two females was more damaged, let's say use the word damaged, uh, than the other. So that might've been the target. So now perhaps there's a struggle. Uh, the two of them are killed and the other two uh, that are in the house, maybe one of them comes into the room or hears it and comes, and then they run back to the room to try and get away from the, the perpetrator. And then those two are killed. However, the two people on the first floor, which they said that it's so far away and it's just, uh, you, there's a lot of noise that could be being made in that first floor and you wouldn't even hear it on the second floor. And then again, the perpetrator might've scurried out of there because of the fact that he just slaughtered four people and wasn't worried about two people that hadn't seen him. That's what I think accounts for, uh, those other two people not being harmed. See, these are some of the things uh, that, that the father is speaking about that obviously the police don't want out there, but in his frustration, his anger and his grieving, he wants action. He wants an arrest and he feels helpless and you can't blame the guy. I mean, I don't blame him for anything. He says, you know, there was something very troubling that he said about, uh, he, he made a statement and he said uh, that tr someone is trying to suppress the story 
Uh, they're not commenting. Nothing is being released. And the thing about no rewards, those two things are very troubling to me. Now, that might be his perception of things. I doubt very highly that, uh, you know, the police department is trying to cover up, uh, you know, anything related to the case. But the community at large, the college community, the mayor, the prosecutor's office. Now, Bill, I, I, I meant to send this to you. We talked about talked about it earlier. There was a statement made by the Moscow police and I'm going to read it. We are continuing receiving inquiries about comments made by Latok County Prosecutor Bill Thompson, who said the suspects specifically looked at the victim, uh, looked at the victim's residence and that one or more of the occupants were undoubtedly targeted. The Moscow Police Department is the only provider, the only provider of official information regarding this case. They're trying to keep the messaging from one location. A lot of people are jumping into this. Uh, but that's all that they can offer at this point. So maybe the location was targeted, but you've said you do not, or maybe you question whether or not this was a targeted attack. Why? I'll tell you what, uh, Brian Anton and I work on this story every day for about 14 hours a day, and he and I are confused. So that should tell you something. I can just tell you what they have put out publicly. At the very beginning of this case, of course, everybody in Moscow, Idaho, the university campus, they were terrified. There's a, there's a deranged mass murderer on the loose. Somebody went and stabbed four people to death. It's a personal, horrendous, violent crime. So right away, the police said, let's pull it back a notch. This is a targeted attack, which was supposed to perhaps put the community at ease. Then they walked that back somewhat because they wouldn't say why. They wouldn't say why they thought it was a targeted attack. Understandably, they're investigating. They said that was part of the investigation. Then the interviews with the prosecutor started coming in. Brian Enton asked him very specifically about that. And he said, you know, maybe targeted isn't the best word to use. It could be the house that was targeted or the people inside, one or two or three, but but we're, we're not sure. Well, then that was an awkward change to, to the wording. And then that prosecutor did an interview with KTVB in Boise, Idaho, and said one person in the house was targeted. Well, that's a massive development in the story. But only hours after that tweet went out to, to promote that interview was coming, the city of Moscow said the police are putting out clarification again and saying, we don't even know, um, you know, if the house or the people inside were targeted. So, Michelle, you see how uh, confusing that is? Uh, it is really confusing. Yeah, the messaging going out there is really, and you know, it's important that, you know, for the messaging, for the community, because the community is really on edge right now, knowing that there's a quadruple murderer out there. And then the messaging should be coming from one direction, the police department. The prosecutor Correct. really has to keep his mouth shut, you know, because it's not in the courts yet. There's been no arrest. So why do you feel it necessary to open up your mouth? You know, uh, should, I mean, should and that be is baffling. I mean, you talked about DCPI and they were, you know, those are pros. The NYPD has pros that sit down and, and work with the reporters to make sure that the right messaging is out there for this very reason. Because what it does is just, um, well, it frustrates a father into giving out intel that might be, you know, detrimental to the case. 
you have to wonder why they're against a reward. Do they have somebody under surveillance? Are they gathering intel on somebody and they don't want too many eyes on them? You know, we saw what happened with uh, somebody being falsely accused with these web sleuths, right? And, you know, how he was a little bit of a weirdo and people just started to attack him publicly and point the finger at him publicly. I think, you know, there's a valid, you are you're both a thousand percent right. This case is going to be all about forensics, and Phil, you Everybody know, I know your history. That. Yeah, I mean, I know your history. So you're the one that's going to be on point, like Billy, just on this idea that it's what's in the house, what's under the fingernails, what did they get from the bodies, what did the medical examiner recover? That's going to be the only thing that gets any answers on this case. But the idea that you're saying it's targeted, it's not targeted, it is targeted. Well, we don't think it's a targeted. Oh, it's one person targeted. That just sets people on fire right yeah but you you know what michelle um if the police don't want that information divulged the prosecutor's got no business saying it now i worked many high profile cases in brooklyn south i was out of the coney island precinct the 60 precinct detective squad and we had a great relationship with the da's office because uh listen very high profile cases they were right in there with us giving us subpoenas whatever but they didn't make any statements about a case until after an arrest was made. When the press conference would go down after a high-profile case, like I'll, I'll throw it out there, the Bensonhurst case where Yusef Hawkins was murdered, that's when they were present during the press conference. Beforehand, Chief of Detectives Office or DCPI was giving information out, and we controlled what information went out there. Now, I if this were my case, I don't think I would want the fact that one of these victims was targeted to be out there because now a person who committed the crime who might be getting at ease, time is passing. Now they're, they're going to be back on their heels again. And again, I said this before, people out there should be looking for someone who uh, hasn't been coming to work or is laying low. That might be a sub suspect in this case, obviously a little more than that. But if there's someone you suspect and they haven't been around or they're trying to lay low, throw it into the tip line, let the police figure out if they're involved or not. These are all things that let law enforcement control the messaging. And I think that statement from the Moscow police department is 100% right on. Well, Michelle, I I've think never that, heard of a good. DA talking about a case. Like it's he wants like his 15 minutes of fame. That's what it is. About your case, right? Phil, right. I wouldn't go to Mike Becchione and ask about your case. I wouldn't go to the Manhattan DA and ask about one of your cases. You go to the source. You try to have sources around the case, or you go to the chief of deeds, or you go to DCPI. But this idea that you're going to have like some prosecutor who's not on the ground, who doesn't have all the facts. And you have to wonder if the cops are intentionally not telling this DA vital information so he doesn't leak it. Yeah, leaks. Couldn't you stop talking? <laughs> yeah, no, leaks can really uh, destroy a case. And they're definitely detrimental to the case. And I think that when we worked with the DA's office, they may be giving us, you know, go a little further with this, go do that, go interview this, that person. And we would work with them. They're not going to talk publicly about that because eventually, let's face it, they're going to be the ones that are going to have to try the case. So they do want to control some of the investigation. I get that. That's okay. But as far as uh, giving public information, it should be coming from the police and police department. That's it. Thank you, the day. Because following this case, especially um, so many people have said this was such a brutal stabbing murder, so gangland style, that perhaps there was some kind of drug activity or drug connection, and you got a definitive answer on that today. 
Yeah, I asked the prosecutor about that, and he said, to his knowledge, uh, drugs are not involved. I, I tried to ask him, you know, you and I were on the phone last night going over all these theories for, for hours, and I tried to get to almost all of them. Um, he said, uh, I asked him about whether or not um, inside the house the killer left any messages, anything on the walls. He said, no, not to his knowledge, but the drugs was a big one. He addressed that. Uh, listen. Again, why is the prosecutor giving interviews at this stage of the case? He has no business giving interviews. It hurts the case. It really does. I mean, I've never seen it before. I can't yeah, think of well, it other than, you know, Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore when she was talking about the failed prosecutions against those police officers. Other than that, I can't think about someone coming out and publicly talking about a case so, so detrimentally. That, that yeah, is very political. Office. That Marilyn Mulvey, that's a political thing. And I think this may not be political. There hasn't been many murders in that location, and he wants to get his 15 minutes of fame, and, and it could be very detrimental to the case. It's not a good thing. There, there is some politics in the way that this case is being worked. And, for example, in the very beginning of the case, the mayor actually yep. was talking, and he said, oh, no one's in any danger. This was personal and targeted. I was like, where did he get that from? He called it a crime of passion, Bill. Yeah. And, and we were oh, like, boy. yeah, really that, that's, what, that's what was said in the very beginning of this case. Let me, that what that, what that message, that message right me. there tells me that it's a, a, a it's crime of passion. It sounds like it's just one person and we don't have to worry. That's not good. That was a very bad. I message. want to get the prosecutor and he talks about how were the possibility of drugs involved in this case. And he speaks on that now. In all of this, I have not heard that there's any suspicion that drugs played a role in the killings. So not like a drug deal gone bad or something like that. I am not aware of anything like that. No. And that's obviously so Brian, important, Ashley, because if you look online, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah. No, go ahead. No, I was just saying that's a big one because there's all sorts of theories online that that there may have been drugs involved. But but he said right there, um, no, that's not the case. Which it leaves us even in more confounded because, again, with that violent style of, of murder, um, angry, uh, almost retributive, um, it, it's now leaving us to all the other possibilities of why someone might not have done that if it weren't to avenge you know, a drug deal or a drug turf or something like that. So the other question I had, when we, when we saw those cars being towed, and I don't know if we can roll some of that video, I was curious about it being day 16. Um, I would have thought that those vehicles might have actually had some clues in their inner mechanisms. The GPS locator sometimes can tell you where cars have been, where cars have driven. But 16 days later, they could not have processed that on the scene, and now here they are towing them away. And also, they're towing them away in an unusual way. You can see that they're, the, the front wheels are on another set of wheels. I don't know if you know whether that's to stop the jostling of the evidence that might still be in the vehicle. Did they say anything about that? Uh, they had a couple of different tow trucks out there. I don't think they towed them all that way. So I don't know that, that that's the reason. Um, but, but we asked police why today and basically just said it, it was now time to move them to a facility where they would uh, do further crime scene processing of the cars. I got to tell you, overall, the feeling I got today after these interviews with police prosecutor is if there's no person of interest and 
um, you know, I mean, they're making some progress, but it seems like now they're going back and, and really examining some of these other items, um, including the cars. Well, I mean, then let's hope that they're going to have an opportunity to get into some kind of evidence that might exist within those vehicles, even if it's the electronic evidence. I think, you know, you know I, as someone who drives a Jeep, go ahead. go ahead, Michelle, go ahead. As someone who drives a Jeep Wrangler, I have a, I have a manual stick shift, so they have to tow the car like that. But it does raise yeah. the question about why they waited so long to take the, any evidence from the cars, right? I had 100%. a big problem with that waiting 16 days to forensically process the cars. I think it's ridiculous, you know, and That's again, if they don't have the personnel, get the personnel, get the governor. They, they have the to have the personnel. Well, the governor put up a million dollars. That a million dollars would go in a, in a month or two in New York City for overtime. Probably less than that. Right. Bill and I said this the other day. If those cars were not going to be a point of crime scene investigation or what they weren't relative to the case, they should have been taken out of there a long time ago. If they were, they should have been taken out immediately and brought to whatever location to do the crime scene run. And they waited for it to snow on top of them. And that, you know, if there was evidence exter externally, it's probably compromised. And the way that they towed those cars with those wheels on the front, that's only because they may not have had the keys and stuff like that. That just makes it easier to tow the vehicle away. I don't think that was a big uh, point of contention that uh, yeah. Ashley Banfield was making. I don't think she was familiar with that. I am. Uh, so they, they put those things on the front when you don't have the keys or if you saw one of the cars, the, the wheels were turned. So they probably didn't have the, uh, you know, the keys to, t to straighten out the wheels or put it in neutral so the wheels will turn. So that's really not a big deal. But again, they should have did that right away if they were going to do it. It was an afterthought. I mean, at least they did do it at some point. Let's hope there's not any valuable evidence that was compromised. You know, I think by uh, the, the police department not putting out the message that they want to go out, it allows all the broadcasters to just really go wild and invent stuff. And I mean, here we yeah. are looking at Ashley Banfield, who I really like, and Brian Enton, I really like, but they're, really they're not investigators. They're not homicide investigators. And they're literally saying, oh, we can't, yeah, well, you don't have to figure this out. You know what I mean? You can rise <laughs> and yeah, you're not the ones that have to figure this out. I know you're frustrated because you want to be like, this is what happened. But guess what? It's up again. I feel like I'm saying this ad nauseum. It's up to the police department to put out that messaging that makes the journalist. And, you know, as I said, every channel has a new talking head every other day. And they're all, you know, this person, that person says this, this person, you know, and, and it really confuses confounds the confusion on this case well what the big question that was raised by the prosecutor's interview for me is what if it wasn't a crime of passion now you've just given a defense a, a very strong defense to some stranger perp that could very well be behind this horrific crime so if this is a stranger perp and you have the prosecutor going on the record saying it was a crime of passion then that gives the defense attorney a big opportunity to say that the cops don't know what they're talking about and they've been wrong from the very beginning. Good point, Michelle, because we had Mike Vecchione on, who is a career prosecutor in Brooklyn, 
uh, chief of the homicide bureau. And he said basically the same thing that when you do too much, uh, too much stuff gets out there. These are points of contention that a defense attorney will take and say, well, isn't it true that you uh, in the early stages said that this was a crime of passion and, and it's going to create a possible doubt in the mind of a jury and uh, very dangerous. Uh, we wouldn't want someone that committed this horrible, horrible crime to be acquitted. So again, uh, it's a good point that you make there, Michelle. Absolutely. And again, it goes back to the, um, to the messaging and, and Michelle, one of the reasons I wanted you on the show is because that was your job, you know, the messaging and you lived with a major police department that was very careful with their messaging. And, uh, well, I know I was careful with my messaging. And one of the things I would not say is I can't figure this out. What I have, my job is to report go facts. with the facts and the information that I garner from these professionals. I'm not the professional. I'm the reporter. And I'm also very careful to make sure that I don't in any way, you know, um, somehow upset a case or upend evidence because I reported it too early or there's something erroneous out there. Because I look, in the end, what you want and what your job is, is to make sure that there is justice for the victims. And if you're a small part of that, you have to make sure that you are reporting the facts and there's nothing that could be taken out of context or provided to defense attorneys to acquit somebody who's guilty of something as horrible as this crime is. I mean, the first thing I thought of when I heard that prosecutor sitting there in his, you know, ridiculous vest, like he just came in out of the snow tundra, is this guy <laughs> just gave the defense a huge win if it's somebody who's a stranger. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. You know, it's uh, it's sort of like a lesson in what not to do and say in a homicide investigation. But, uh, you know, some of the things I think that really is upsetting people is, A, they haven't found the murder weapon. B, three weeks and there's no suspect. There's no, you know, and I think the term person of interest was actually invented by the media because I never, ever heard us use that <laughs> in the homicide world, you know. So that person of interest crap, it was invented by the media. Do you have a person of interest? You know, and you're like, oh, God. You know, and they're all expecting that answer because that's the questions they always ask. And the third thing is, you know, look, we all have been taught that, you know, murder with a knife is personal. Just the up-close personal nature. We all say that. But every single, you know, every day there's a new talking head on some station and talking about, his prediction and what this means and what that means. And it throws a lot of confusion into the investigation. Oh, so-and-so on CNN said this, so-and-so on Fox said that, so-and-so on this station, you know, and it, it gets confusing and it's just, it'd probably be good if they didn't bring a million talking heads on, uh, on network television, you know? And you do have to wonder about politics because politics are in every case. Uh, you know that, you know, the politics of who speaks on a case, the politics of who's giving out intel on a case. The chief of D's speaks personally when, they, you know, things are going in the favor of the NYPD, right? Otherwise, you put right. up the DCPI inspector. Right. So I think that this prosecutor, you have to wonder if there's, I mean, look, I don't know anything about the Moscow, Idaho politics. But between the mayor and the prosecutor and everyone is, you know, sitting down and giving interviews and talking off the cuff and running their mouths, it, it, it does raise some questions about what the politics in that city are.
Who's, who's driving this? Mixed right. messaging. There's two things that Bill and I talked about before we went on the air. One was, um, you know, the community at large relies on, uh, you know, the college to supply the restaurants, the people that rest the houses. So there's revenue. So they don't want to, obviously, I'm talking about the mayor. I'm not talking about the police department, the community people, the, the college itself. They don't want bad press. Unfortunately, they have it. They're going to have it until this case is solved. That's one, too. Um, when we would uh, work on homicides, and only because we had a lot of them, shootings and homicides, I myself had probably, I don't know, 15, 20, 25 homicides assigned to me that I was assigned to. However, I worked on hundreds of them and a lot of them high profile cases. So when we would go to the scene, I happen to work with the 6-0 detective squad where there was a great team of guys where when we got to the scene, nobody had to be told what to do. People would just say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to interview that person. I'm going to go to canvas here. I'm going to, and uh, you know, the bosses obviously would give some direction as well, but we worked like a well-oiled machine. In this case, there's not a lot of uh, experience in homicide investigation, and I think the messaging as well is off. So we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. It seems like they're on the right track. Uh, during the interview with uh, uh, the, the father of Goncalves, Chris, he said that they had uh, signed the waivers, I guess, to, uh, probably to look through mail or something like that. So they're doing a lot of proactive stuff. It's going to be solved. Uh, there, there are rumors uh, and innuendo that uh, Lawrence Jones talked about on that uh, Fox News thing from last night, that there may possibly be someone that they're zeroing in on. Let's keep our fingers crossed and hope that that is going to be uh, happening real soon. Uh, Michelle, I know that you have to leave. I just want to uh, let the audience know this is Michelle's book, Mayhem, about the Boston Marathon uh, investigation. An amazing book and an amazing piece of uh, investigative journalism. And she also wrote A Date with Death. This was about the uh, Craigslist killer. So uh, go and do yourself a favor and go on Amazon and buy Michelle's books. Um, Michelle, I just want to um, thank you for coming on the show today. You really added uh, a lot to the show. Thank you so much. No, I love being with you guys I, because it's, it's always fascinating to hear what you both have to say, especially on these high-profile cases. My last question for both of you before we I head out is, um, does this raise a question about whether there should be a, a national, a federal homicide division for when you have these multiple slayings in a small town like Moscow that might not have the resources? You know, I think that the experience quotient comes from the big city uh, police departments. That's where the homicide experience is. The New York's the Chicago's, yep. the Baltimore's, the Washington, D.C. That's where the best investigators are because they do it all the time. So when you talk about so the So why Fed, isn't there like a National Guard like team? Like, well, it's almost like, you know, if they, NYPD, LAPD, Boston, New yeah, York. If they, if they could request help from those cities, that would probably help them a lot. But, you know, there's egos involved too. No small town, even though they don't normally investigate homicides, they don't want help because it's, it'd be like an embarrassing thing to ask a bigger police department for homicide investigators. For good, sure. Good answer. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Michelle, before you go, London Girl, she put a couple of really nice comments in there. One, she said you were dead on, and she said, thanks, Michelle. You're great. So everybody loves you, and thanks for coming Thank on. you, guys. Well, I love everybody out there because I, I love watching the comments. You can see me because everybody's spot on. Everybody has such good insight on the show, you can tell that these are people who actually care about answers and integrity and, and trust you both to make sure their facts are being put out there. So 
It's always Absolutely. great to be on with you. Thank Have you. a great day, Thanks, Michelle. Guys. Thank Take you. Care, you too. So that was Michelle McPhee. You know, guys, uh, th this, you know, to think that this is an easy case for any police department, it's not an easy case. It's a very difficult case. There's so many moving parts. There's so much involved. And we don't mean to imply and we don't mean at all. We don't. I want to have faith in the Moscow Police Department. And I really believe that at the end of the day, this case is going to be solved. I really believe that. Absolutely, Billy. And uh, like I said earlier, uh, I see the frustration on that family that we saw in that Fox News, Lawrence Jones interview. I get it. I can't even imagine what these people must be going through. But do something proactive. Get together. Get the other families. Everybody should get on the same page. Form an alliance. Get reward out there. Get a reward out there. That is going to be very, very important. I'm telling you, I've seen it work in the past. Uh, and if the police department doesn't want you to do it, let them be specific at why and, and say, okay, maybe we shouldn't do it. But I think that a reward at this time, and that'll give you guys something to do where you could feel like you're being pro proactive to try and solve this homicide. Dozens of tips and crime scene pictures, still no suspect in the murder of four Idaho college students stabbed in their sleep. Families mourning their loved ones while looking to the police for answers as agonizing weeks stretch on. News Nation's Brian Enton joining us live now from Moscow. And Brian, some of these family members are frustrated. Are we any closer to a suspect than we were three weeks ago? Unfortunately, not that we know of, Natasha. The latest we have heard from police is that there is still no known suspect and not even any persons of interest. The prosecutor told me this week they don't have any video of a suspect on camera, uh, and they're still soliciting tips from the public now, three weeks after the murders in the house behind me. You can see uh, this is still a crime scene tape. Uh, the police department here has hired private security to keep an eye on the house uh, at all times as the victim's families grow frustrated. I spoke with uh, Kaylee Gonzalez's uh, family, her mom and dad uh, and sister, uh, who say they're just growing impatient and they want more information from the police. Is anyone acting differently since the murders? I mean, is there anyone that that you have a weird feeling about? that the girls knew or that comes to mind? Yeah, I would say um, not in the immediate circle by any means, but a few of the names that have been circulating around, I think it's hard not to kind of, you know, dig into this. And I don't know how much of that is just because we have so little information from law enforcement and how much of it really is, you know, a sister or a father's intuition. Can you elaborate at all? I don't know. Um, you don't have to give a name, but I mean, is it is it someone that she knew or? I have something to say about that. Uh, I just feel like there's been a couple individuals that were cleared very fast. That may not maybe should not have And yeah, she had the strong alibi. Just really fast. It, just if you can like, dismiss you know, an hour later, and we're like, what? And I don't know. I don't know anything about those individuals. I just know right. they were people that you know definitely should have been looked at and. Yeah. I don't know what would prevent you from sharing somebody's alibi. Yeah, I think that's what we're struggling with. So it's like, you know, we know what we know. We've, you know, fought for, for Jack Kaylee's boyfriend. And, you know, we still stand that way. So I did just kind of want to clear that up um, while we're talking through this ambiguity that, you know, that's not what we're honing in on here. We so. don't want to make more victims out of innocent people. Exactly. No, they don't want to do that. 
And so what the family is talking about is there's been a number of people uh, involved who police have said have been cleared at this point. The family is saying they want to know what the specific alibis are. They want to know the evidence and proof of why police cleared uh, those people. Also, Xana Kronodal, that's another one of the victims for the first time. Her mom spoke out last night uh, to Ashley Banfield, something very interesting. She revealed uh, that Xana's uh, father was actually at this house uh, within a week of the murders. Listen to what she said. Her father mentioned to me that he had just went and replaced the lock the weekend before. Her, you said her father mentioned to you that they had replaced the lock? Yes, that, they, that he had, or he had fixed it or something. But yeah, he said that he had fixed it the week before. Just to make sure the week it was... Before. It was it's interesting because the way this house is set up behind me, there's a coded lock on the front door. And then we're told the bedrooms, at least most of them, have individual coded locks into the bedrooms. So the fact that her father changed the lock uh, is interesting. We're trying to figure out how the killer got, got into these rooms. Were the doors uh, open or were they closed? All of that uh, still under investigation. Natasha. All right, Brian Enton live for us in Moscow, Idaho. Thank you. Thank you. So, folks, there's, uh, you know, doesn't really help to come up with, like, you know, that we found out this week also that there was a sixth person on the lease. I mean, is that really important investigative information to the investigators? Yeah, they should know that. Um, but every little thing that they find out, does that have to be uh, filtered and sent to the press or to the family? I think that law enforcement needs to keep certain things quiet and uh they need to keep things look i bet you they have a hell of a lot more than all of us are aware of i of really course. know that you know and you know you you can sense and you can understand the family's frustration they want an arrest and i don't blame them but you know they get they do have to stay involved but they also i think have to understand that the police just can't give out information because look they're, they're showing that they're sharing the information with the press. You know, Billy, uh, you're really making a good point because Chris Gonzalez last night on the uh, Lawrence uh, Jones interview, he said, how could I lay in bed at night and try and sleep knowing that the person that did this is out there? I mean, that poor guy cannot sleep. He cannot rest. He needs to be active in, in trying to solve this thing. And uh, it's really horrendous to have to be going through this. And I think you're right, Billy. There's probably a lot more information out there than they're divulging. I'm certain of it. And uh, it's just something Brian Enton said. I've said it before. If someone is acting a little bit strange post this homicide, maybe they were out of the loop or their uh, reaction to it is not right. Those are things that uh, I'd be calling into the tip line. That's uh, That was a good point. And he asked about the people in the close circle. And they said, no, we don't think it's anybody acting odd in the close circle. However, maybe outside of the circle. So, again, things like that are going to be things that investigators would be zeroing in on. Absolutely. Phil, you want to take care of this? Joel Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? 
Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe was asked uh, to come on our show, but he's actually very busy with his practice. A terrific friend of police off the cuff and a great, excellent criminal defense attorney. Absolutely. You know, folks, you know, I don't don't get frustrated as people that are following this case. You know, just know that law enforcement is working this as hard as they possibly can, you know, and. It's easy for the broadcast media to beat down on the police department because, again, they don't know a lot of things that the police department knows. And they don't know the the inside of this investigation and how difficult it is and what they're working uh, towards and the information that they have. So I just say, uh, you know, we're going to have to be patient. I think that uh, part of that patient is, patience is to let law enforcement do their job. And I, again... I can understand how the family, they don't want to be patient because they, this is their, their child that they lost. And uh, so I understand both sides. You know, the detectives assigned to this case, I doubt that they're going to have any uh, thought process of celebrating a holiday, of being with family, going out to a dinner. They're going to be focused on this case, and rightfully so, because that's the way we would work these cases. These cases would be going seven days a week, just about 24 hours a day, whether it be people manning the hotline, uh, all the different things, all the moving parts of an investigation like this. So again, uh, just everyone should take a deep breath, have a little patience. There's been some, what we might call missteps with regard to uh, the messaging on this case and stuff like that. And the fact that the vehicles were taken down the line, but let's give law enforcement the benefit of the doubt. I am sure they are working very, very hard to try and solve this crime. I mean, anybody that's a human being or has a child, uh, their heart's going to be in this. So again, uh, the families, the frustration that they're feeling, I get it. But like I said earlier, let them get together. They should form an alliance to do rewards and maybe have, uh, uh, you know, just one spokesperson coming from the family. So there's not all this mixed messaging and different things that might be leaking out unintentionally. Uh, that's some of the suggestions that I have. You know, folks, I just want to uh, uh, turn toward the chat and just thank all of our subscribers, all of our fans, all of our channel members. We really appreciate you guys. Um, Francesca, all the families and siblings should be reviewed. Uh, you never know. Yeah, well, that's part of a victimology that uh, everyone is not beyond suspicion. Everyone is looked at. Um, uh, run the world. Yes, much love to the PD. Uh, blacks, patience is the key. Absolutely. Uh, they got to be patient no matter how hard it gets. Yep, I, I agree. But I guess if this was your child, it'd be very difficult to be patient. Of course. You're just uh, beyond beyond grief. Phil, final words. Final words again. Uh, thoughts and prayers go out to these families. Uh, thoughts and prayers for the investigators as well. I mean, they're doing God's work. I think they're going to wind up having a successful conclusion to this case. Let's just hope, and I've said this at ad nauseum, it's sooner rather than later. Um, I, I think that having Michelle on today, she gave us some great insight 
Uh, she loved the people in the chat because she knows that all of our subscribers and our members and our fans are all uh, plugged into real crime. And uh, a lot of great comments come from our uh, from our chat and our supporters. And we thank you very, very much. Absolutely. Schmitty, thank you for the $5 super chat. Thank you. I hope the police stay focused and do not succumb to the effort of many entities throwing them off track. Patience is a virtue for sure. Absolutely, Schmitty. And thank you for your wisdom and your thank excellent. You. Your excellent post. So, folks, again, thank you so much for tuning in today. Uh, we're going to stay on this case. We're hoping and uh, praying for an arrest. And, um, you know, it gets more and more difficult as the days go by and there's not an arrest. But we, we have faith and we believe there's going to be an arrest in this case. So, folks, have a great day and God bless. Stay safe, everyone. One episode. Just ain't enough